1: Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's NeuroFeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssens.com, Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipWren.com, and Jay Gunkelman, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. You'll find him easy. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. My name is Peyton. today we're going to answer listener questions. And with Elon Musk doing Saturday Night Live the other night, he announced he had Asperger's. What is Asperger's, and how can we detect it and train it? Everybody, let's get to the listener question. It's a Mental Health Awareness Month, and we have a listener question regarding concussion protocols and using EEG. If an athlete gets a QEEG baseline and then they sustain a head injury, what would the process be to determine whether they are healthy enough to play? Could it be done immediately, or does it have to be a certain number of days after the injury? So the brain mapping will accurately
0: reflect the injury. Traumatic brain injury comes in a wide variety of flavors basically. You can have a severe injury uh, where there's white matter involvement and potentially even a bleed. And occasionally the very severe injuries can induce paroxysmal or epileptiform activity, a contusion for instance can create that. So if it's a severe injury, there's reasons to do testing early. Um, Mild traumatic brain injury is generally gray matter. Uh, Severe injuries include white matter, which is deeper in the brain. So there's no hard and fast rule. You know, you got to wait a week or you got to do it immediately. It depends upon the severity. If it's very severe, Getting it done earlier ends up giving you information that may end up helping change the course of treatment. Um, Obviously, if you identify a paroxysmal discharge after a significant brain injury, there's uh, the ability to actually temporarily treat it with an anticonvulsant prophylactically to avoid the onset of seizures. Every time the discharge happens, it's easier to make the discharge. So quieting it down allows it to slowly fade away as opposed to burn itself in. So an early test for a severe injury is warranted. Now, the EEG, QEG, is a resting state, eyes open, eyes closed task. It doesn't really test the brain on task, doing something. Those are done with something other than just the resting state EEG. The resting state EEG done you know, three, four, five days a week after the traumatic brain injury, uh, we'll end up identifying whether there's substantial changes. Um, You you want the person to recover some. Uh, After a head injury, rest is one of the major things that's warranted. If you put a brain back online too early, it can actually create further damage. The the brain requiring blood flow for function uh, when it should be healing. Uh, is is a mistake. So uh, getting the initial study, if it's a severe one, waiting a little bit until it's convenient, uh, if it's a, a more mild traumatic brain injury. But I think auxiliary testing for performance, how does the brain handle a task, is also extremely useful. Uh, continuous performance tasks, which aren't really continuous, they're, you know, episodic, but Nevertheless, they're called continuous performance tasks uh, where you're responding to a stimulus. If a a one pops up, you hit a button. If an O pops up, you don't, that sort of a thing. Uh, Well, a a CPT task can end up being performed while the EEG is being recorded and you get what's called an event-related potential. And the event-related potential literally can watch how the brain processes the stimulus how it engages the motor system, how it disengages the motor system, and also how the anterior cingulate compares the behavior to the model of how the brain is thinking it should be behaving. And uh, uh, you you can sometimes see obsessive compulsive or or, uh, OCD, ODD uh, type things with the anterior cingulate. So looking at the brain at rest is useful. Uh, Doing it early for a severe injury Uh, waiting a little bit for a less severe injury. uh, And then uh, again, pairing it with a CPT task. Now, if you've already done a CPT task and have a baseline EEG, you have a pretty good idea how many omission errors, how many commission errors, what the reaction time is, how much variability there is in the reaction time. So you actually have a baseline performance, not just what the resting state of the brain is like, but actually what the behavioral performance is like. And until you can match your pre-trauma behavioral performance, you should think about sitting on the sidelines until you return to functional integrity. Uh, so that, that's kind of a, a quick rundown. Uh, the brain can show lots of different things. Uh, there's actually an increase in gamma activity with a, with a significant head injury. And uh, uh, Harry Karasidis is a neurologist who has a focus on head trauma and sports in his practice. And uh, uh, he, he coined the term BAMA for, for traumatically induced gamma. BAMA, well, you know, it's kind of descriptive. You got a, a whack in the head and you end up with an increase in, in gamma. Um, but uh, a slow focus is there if it's a more severe injury, if there's, if there's white matter and uh, changes in alpha and beta are there if there's uh, gray matter. Anyway, that's a, a, a quick buzz through the, the territory. And uh, I want to leave it open for others to comment as well.
1: When I played ball, I would take a good hit on the field. And I remember the docs doing something with their finger. And what, like, what is the protocol now to, to like, what is severe? Because I remember guys would get back in the huddle they didn't know where they were, but they still performed. They finish out the game. And they don't remember the rest of the game. I guess that would be severe. But yeah, uh, that, how do you... How that's do you, that's how a, do you, a pretty
0: you, significant head injury, all right? Um, you know, uh, if, if you get hit enough so that you don't know where you are, if you're walking towards the wrong end of the field, uh, if there's an alteration of consciousness where you're temporarily out of uh, awareness at all, and the the person who's still laying there on the field uh, a- after a head injury um, uh, nowadays the protocols are if they see you hit uh, whether you're complaining or not, they usually pull you to the side uh, and do some quick testing Now tracking the finger with your eyes is um, you, you've got to be somewhat intact in the frontal lobe for your eyes to track things so they're not really trying to see if you can see the direction of the E on the chart. They're just trying to see are your eyes pointing in the same direction at the same time kind of. So uh, it's a gross test uh, that they sometimes would test things like balance or something, but the CPT task is a little handheld computer thing that you operate. uh, you, You hit the button when you get the right signal and that kind of a screening ends up being quite objective. And again, it tests for, Omission: are, are are you missing signals uh, where you should have hit the button? Uh, commission errors where you're hitting the button when you shouldn't even think about hitting the button. And what's your reaction time? Are are you taking twice as long to hit the button? You're, you know, oh well, Jesus, am I supposed to hit the button here or not? You know, and yeah. um, and then variability in your reaction time. People that have paroxysmal discharges induced from head trauma will have tremendous variability uh, in the reaction time.
2: And you get know, the CPT test. It sounds like that's going to be one where you do need a, pre- a pretest because if you, you don't know if they have a, a, a normal pre premorbid, you know, if they got ADHD or something weird, that's going right. to jack up the CPT test. So you definitely need a pretest on that one. And so Pete's question, well, I mean, when I'm thinking of that, it's like, so almost what's the point of the QEEG if you already got the CPT? I know here in Chicago, the local high schools they, they give a pre like a baseline testing where it's you know uh, working memory, you get the digit span, you have to you know read digits and have the person read them back to you and then do some operations with them, say them backwards, say them in sequential order. You know that's one of the tests. and I think they do like a trails type thing where they're measuring dorsal attention, ventral attention, you know, where are the numbers located in this connect the dots thing. And can I sequence things in the proper order? And then can I flexibly switch back and forth in sequence? So yeah, a lot of frontal lobe type tasks, frontal, striatal, thalamic loopy uh, kinds of tasks. Um, but, you know, talking about the CBT, certainly frontal and the frontal th- thalamic loops. And uh, so, you know, back to Pete's question and the, the question of the uh, caller, you know, w- what is the point of a qEEG pretest? And would that be something you would recommend?
0: In fact, the EEG pretest, you don't necessarily have to process it out. Uh, you, you've got a baseline recording. And if there is a head injury, you've got a baseline study that you can then process out and compare to a more current study. Uh, so it, it, you can save yourself a lot of uh, uh, essentially cost by just doing the recordings as a baseline, set them aside in an archive, and then pull them out if you need them for a comparison. One of the things that we see basically is that uh, mild traumatic brain injuries, the concussion, where it's not a severe injury, there's no bleed, uh, there's no contusion, uh, the the person operates just fine on the short run, but the connectivity has been altered uh, in gray matter and gray matter networks end up being sometimes fairly subtle. So you may pass a lot of those, but the mild traumatic brain injury, not the severe one, but the mild traumatic brain injury may go undetected in routine screening. The EEG is very sensitive, not specific, but very sensitive to ischemic cerebrovascular changes. And if you get a concussion, when you're little, your brother or Some guy in the neighborhood probably slugged you in the shoulder playfully. And, you know, your shoulder will swell up a little bit from getting whacked. And when you whack your brain, it swells up a little bit too, but it can't swell out like a shoulder can. So it compresses the blood vessels in the area and you get cerebrovascular ischemia in the area where the pressure is. And that basically is identifiable in the EEG. The slow edge of alpha tracks ischemia. So you can actually see, oh, well, the brain did suffer a very minor uh, insult over here. And it's going to take some time to fix that. The brain regulates its own blood supply based on function. If you turn an area on, that area opens up blood flow to the area. Well, if you turn on an area that's got ischemia and you exceed the compromised capacity to flow to the area... Uh, you're going to actually create problems, but if you turn it on very gently it'll slowly open up and uh, you, you'll end up repairing the ischemia neurofeedback gently training an area to activate not not beta training or gamma you know fast very very active function, but very gentle activation the the sensory motor rhythm frequency band is a the fast edge of alpha 12 to 15 Hertz outside of what normal people think of as alpha, but in neurology, uh, 11 to 16 is called fast alpha. So it is in that range. So it's a neutral, positive perfusion. It's above the mean, but it's not two or three standard deviations above the mean it's a very gentle on position and that type of training can open up areas of ischemia. So that function can return. If you don't treat the area, it can end up with a chronic ischemia. You know, they don't just spontaneously recover. They recover due to careful, gentle function. If you've actually gotten a concussion and the brain is swelled, you need to carefully put that area back online. If you push it too hard, the compromised blood flow will end up with downstream hypoxia, Hypoxia creates edema. Edema creates pressure, which makes the ischemia worse. You can actually create cell death by pushing an area too hard too soon, which is one of the reasons they tell you to rest after a head injury. So the, the EEG baseline can be used to identify whether the slow edge of alpha has appeared somewhere. Normally, your alpha might be 8 to 12, kind of an ideal Goldilocks uh, alpha peak in the back of the head somewhere. But if you if you look around and you see the, the alpha peak somewhere suddenly has a bulge on the slower edge to it, you've got an area that's likely compromised. You can do some gentle training in the area and put it back online. If you identify an area that's got significant ischemia, uh, there's also hyperbaric, which is very useful for ischemia. Uh, there's, there's other forms of training, not just neurofeedback to gently put the area back online. But if you don't identify the problem, it's hard to target it. it you know, you, you can't tell by, oh, I got hit here. Well, it doesn't mean the damage is there. Uh, the brain flops all over the place in there and it hits somewhere. And that's where the problem is. Now, it's not uncommon to have it at the location of the trauma, but you can have it at a distance as well.
2: Yeah. So that that gets into my comment, I guess, is that uh, these pretests they have at the high school I just mentioned. So the, the trail is kind of a connect the dots thing and the digit span, how many digits can you hold in your mind at once and perform operations with them. Those are largely frontal tasks. Even the CPT is largely frontal and that doesn't mean, uh, you know, um, you didn't get hit in the back or, or the side yeah. or other places. Actually,
0: the, the, the event related potential, which is a CPT with the EEG okay. recorded during it. And then for every presentation of the stimulus, you end up time locking the EEG right. to that. And the average EEG drops out, but the response to the stimulus adds up. So you, you do, you know, 100 stimuli and you've got a very reliable signal. That signal includes sensory detection. I mean, did you actually see the thing that popped up in front of you telling you to hit the button or not? It tells, it It, it shows you the processing, the ventral and dorsal processing stream. What is it that I just saw? Where was it that I just saw it? Um, the motor engagement, the motor inhibition, and then the comparison of what you just did to the model of what you think you should have been doing, which is in the anterior cingulate. Each one of those steps is part of the processing of of that stimulus and the response. And again, if you you record the EEG during the CPT task, you don't just get the behavioral output. I've actually seen the behavioral output be acceptably okay within normal range for the person's age. But when you actually look at the brain's processing of it, you can identify a component, the breaking down of that event-related potential. Usually they call it a P300 where uh, 300 milliseconds after the presentation of the stimulus, you, know, you can differentiate what the stimulus was and respond to it. Well, that, that's a pretty gross waveform, and you're looking for it somewhere in the parietal area about 300 milliseconds later. Well, that, that's you know picking that peak and that latency is a very gross measurement. Uh, nowadays, they do independent component deconstruction of the ERP into the pieces that make it up sensory detection, sensory processing, motor engagement, motor inhibition, and and anterior cingulate comparison uh, to the model that you think you should have been doing. That's tremendous detail. Uh, And there's actually, if you're using a system that has the norms for that kind of a performance already in the database, um, the Europeans and the Koreans have norms for uh, the, the visual com- uh, uh, continuous performance task. It's a very, very sensitive task. It's not just frontal. It's not just memory temporal. Uh, it, it, it detects you know, uh, uh, visual detection, uh, uh, parietal temporal uh, processing, uh, motor engagement. Motor engagement happens just before motor inhibition. You actually have to kind of think about starting the, the response before you stop the response. And, um, uh, the, the the detail of all that timing and everything is is wonderful work. Uh, Yuri Kropotov received the, the uh, Russian Prize for science for using ICA on ERP and EEG uh, after I introduced him to the ICA when we lectured together in Portugal It, uh, the, it, it goes back quite a long ways now uh, to uh, the uh, 2001. Uh, When he was kind of handed the tool. Now, I can't claim anything on that. I handed them tool thinking that the ICA was a way to take out artifact and he saw that it was a way to see meaningful components. So, yeah, he, he's the brilliant one here. I, I was, I just stumbled onto this tool and handed it to him, you know, so uh he he's the real neuroscientist I
2: guess it's, so the the short answer i guess is that q e e g or e e g um, as a baseline is far superior to the um to the the short little tasks that they're giving now to the uh frontal uh trails and the digit spans and those little baseline things are uh, n- nothing in comparison to doing the cues and doing it uh uh with the event uh, potential with the c p t yeah
0: Yeah, an event-related potential with the CPT ends up being a superior form of assessment. And um, it's one of the reasons I recommend it. It, uh, I think it tests a lot of different capacities. You're not going to get away with a right temporal or a left temporal. I mean, the the two uh, processing streams are both tested separately. Um, It's an advanced form of evaluation. And we use it clinically, not only uh, diagnostically for ADD, but we also look at it for pre-post on traumatic brain injury. And I think that's a very, very powerful uh, application for it.
2: And to to simplify it even more, you know, we've got parents listening and such. The the tests that are given now as a baseline are very minimal, only uh, testing very small you know, fraction, well, not that small, but a fraction of the brain functioning is missing out on all the other areas of the brain that could be damaged or hit.
0: I have to say that their crude examination is probably going to catch the really severe injuries where the brain has had a contusion. uh, There's an uh, introduction of an epileptiform discharge. uh, There's a major bleed. Uh, Those kind of things are probably going to get caught on, on their crude Screening, but they're going to be missing the subtleties of the concussion. Now, the, they do say that ninety percent of the people with concussion recover, quote, spontaneously in about six months. Mm, I, uh, spontaneous recovery? I don't. I don't know. There's. You've done things to recover, but there's also things you could do badly and mess up your recovery. So I I think the assessment of subtle findings ends up helping to guide us to avoid putting an area back online when it still really needs further therapy. And the last thing you want to do is put somebody back on the field when just their physical action, not, not another hit, which is another matter entirely. But just their physical action may end up overtasking an area and creating cell death. Now, cell death is a really nasty-sounding thing. You know, um, it, 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 as you're uh, sitting listening to a, a lecture over a dinner at a meeting, uh, you're killing off a lot of blood, a lot of brain cells with with the uh, couple of glasses of wine during the dinner while you're to the, the a dinner speech. And a dinner speech is never really a great speech. You know that you you, you don't pull. Uh, uh, an A card and, and get uh, assigned to lecture during dinner, where all the glasses are clinking and people are chattering. And but you know that you're killing off you know thousands of brain cells. But the thing is, if you're actually paying attention to the lecture and it's material that you're learning, you're making more connections. And it's not about how many cells you have; it's about how many connections you have. So. You haven't gotten stupider by killing off cells from two glasses of wine, but you will kill off cells. You you just have an improvement in the connectivity uh, to compensate for the cells.
3: You you were alluding to maybe more mild hits or injuries, Jay, but the question was about a TBI. And my question, I guess, is about the more subtle hits and Pete's played and I played that happened on every play. Uh, if you play on the line, you know, an interior position, unless I, I don't even know how you could avoid hitting on every single play, whereas other positions you might not. And so you have these micro hits that occur 60 times a game at least. Um, so my question, I guess, or comment, what, what would be appropriate for an assessment of the accumulation of those types of hits? And I'll just lay out an example. So Back when I played, you know, you would do a pre physical and then a postseason physical, and then you had the off season to rehab shoulder, arm, elbow, knee. Nobody even talked about brains back then, unless you fell down and didn't get up, right? But that—that that is, I guess, what I'm wondering: what kind of assessment slash treatment regimen could be established, maybe with a pre season pre test and then mid season postseason to account for these micro hits that absolutely happen and, and have effects, right?
0: Previously, I said uh, a mild traumatic brain injury and a mild traumatic brain injury don't yield a mild traumatic brain injury. IU. When you add them up, they don't add, they, they're exponentially multiplying. Um, the, the second hit may, the, the brain uh, creates networks and networks have spokes and hubs kind of like a big tinker toy set with a, the hubs are the little round pieces and the little spokes between them. Now, if you could get a good hit in the head, you might break a couple of those little spokes that go between hubs. And, you know, you can, you can look at the tinker toy thing and go, well, I can just go to this one and that one and then back to that one. So I can reroute. No problem. So a mild traumatic brain injury that does one little connectivity thing Eh, you can reroute. But let's say you took out a hub. Well, that's a little harder to reroute. There's a lot of little spokes going to that hub. And some hubs are more important than others. They're called the rich club hub. A rich club hub, if you take one of those out, you're down functionally. For That that, that really messes you up. Take out a rich club hub, You you may not recover well. And Uh, one injury and then another injury, you're starting to take out more pieces. The more pieces you take out, the harder it is to reroute and make brain areas connect for purposes that they should be connected for. So uh, multiple hits are not a good thing. Uh, Little tiny hits are probably recoverable, but the second or third or fourth tiny hit, you might break enough spokes to end up taking out an entire functional area. And that's, that's the problem, r- repeated sports hits. The Thompson's, Michael and Linda Thompson in Canada, Michael passed recently, uh, but uh, their, their kid, James Thompson uh, at Penn State uh, did his PhD dissertation on sports injury and r- repeated sports injury. <coughs> Uh, really solid data on the fact that repeated injury ends up uh, being, you know, one plus one isn't two, it's 10, you know? So uh, the, the, those little ones aren't uh, entirely dismissible. Now uh, the, there's a big incentive to be on the sports team. You don't want to let down your teammates. Goodness knows everybody that's got whacked in the head and knocked to the ground uh, and the, the team doctor rushes out and they start testing their finger, you know, well, what's going on? You know, well, you, you, you got hit. Oh, well, let me back in the game. I'll, I'm fine. You know, the, it, it just rang my bell. I just saw stars, you know, I just, 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 well, the, the desire to be part of the team, back on the team, not let down your teammates is so strong that people will make really bad decisions and stay on the field. The little tiny ones that rang your bell, th- those were probably a time to sit out, maybe take the rest of the game off, Um Maybe just a few minutes to the sideline to clear your head and see whether you can pass simple CPT tasks and things like that. A brain injury is a brain injury, a mild traumatic brain injury. You can't really judge based on the force, whether it was mild. You have to judge based on the effect, you know, what area of the brain was actually impacted.
2: Yeah, you you know, I can't help but still think about last week with Seaburn Fisher, and she talked about those pudding caps from the 1600s, that someone had the theory that, uh, you know, when you're an infant, you bounce around a lot, and, you know, talk about these micro hits, well, you know, isn't that uh, our childhood, especially, especially during those young developmental uh, stages, and uh, the theory that perhaps, uh, you know, all those little micro hits as a child result in ADHD, all the ADHD we're seeing, Um, so you know how is that any different? You know, certainly different in terms of developmental f- stages and the f- fragility of the skull. You know, when you're so young and the, all the, all the changes and pruning and things like that. So, uh, kind of compelling stuff.
0: Yeah, and it, the traumatic brain injury in a in a young child is still a serious thing to be, looking at. However. The as you're crawling and your arm collapses and you and you fall like six inches or eight inches and bonk your nose, we are born with twice the number of brain neuron cells that we end up with as a young teen post puberty, about half of the brain cells. So, and our cortexes aren't really wired up, the, the networks aren't wired up and, and myelinated when you're an infant. And your brain is all fresh and puffy, and when you get old and it fades away and it's wrinkly and you know has lots of space to flop around up there, you have lots of more damage. Um, uh, My father uh, in his eighties went back to Fargo for um, uh, Thanksgiving. He slipped and he fell. And, uh, and, you know, he hurt his shoulder and uh, uh, got a little nick on his eyebrow and they stitched up the eyebrow and they x-rayed his shoulder and arm, but they didn't CT scan his head. And if you're in your eighties and you fall from, you know, I don't know what, he's the amazing shrinking dad at that point. I think he was down to maybe five, six or something, you know, and. Uh, But if you fall from that height, that's not like a baby bonking from a few inches up Uh, that that, that's a serious whack. And the brain flops around in there. Uh, I spoke to him on the phone about five weeks later, he was in Arizona back, you know, back in sun city and um, watching football on a Saturday. And he was looking forward to uh, watching football on Sunday. And, but I spoke to him and I, he couldn't really understand what I was saying fully and he couldn't find words. And I'm the product of this guy. So he found words before, you know, he, he was a a public speaker if there ever was one. So I realized, Oh shoot, my, my dad uh, probably has a subdural hematoma. Uh, If it was an epidural, it would have killed him within hours of of the trauma. Uh, they, They would have probably spotted that, behaviorally at the time. But they didn't see his head. Uh, He had 160 cc's of blood. Uh, His left hemisphere was squeezed to the point where there wasn't any um, convex concave. It it was just absolutely smashed. I I told him he had to go to the ER and he really couldn't understand me. I said, put mom on the phone. And I typed in an email uh, describing what I thought it was and where I thought it was. And she took him and that note to the ER. I got a phone call from my mom and she said uh, that the neurosurgeon wants to speak to you. And so I called the number and they passed me through to the headset on his head. He wanted to know how you diagnose a subdural hematoma on the phone. And I said, well, you don't you use an MRI or a CT scan. This is just a, a parlor trick. I, I hang out with neuroscience folks and it was a It was a good guess. He said, it was a good guess. You told me exactly where it was going to be, exactly how big it was, exactly what areas it was involved in. And um, I said, yeah, but you still use an MRI or a CT scan. It it saved his life. That's a severe injury, but it's also a senior. And and again, an infant bonk in their head. Goodness knows, we've all uh, probably got pictures of ourselves as a kid with a bruise here or there. Uh, maybe even a black eye or something, you know, but uh, those are relatively minor by comparison to the same kind of trauma to an older child. Uh, Because again, the brain is all fresh and puffy and you've got extra neurons there. You can, you can prune a few uh, that, that uh, you don't really need anyway.
3: We're talking about a double-edged sword to some extent, Uh, Maybe not something that's sharp or harmful, but we're trying to discuss and maybe raise awareness of head injury uh, because it can happen with conceivably very little force, right? You bump into a door isn't the same as an auto accident where you wake up in the ER or, you know, after being in a coma, right? Those are quite different um, but we're also a pretty durable species, and so it's a you know it, it's raising awareness, being cognizant of hey, if you bump your head, you know, a few times, it could have effects. And there's folks that can you know talk to you and, and look at those effects. Us, right, folks doing their feedback and cues and all those kinds of things. But that we're also you know again pretty durable and can can manage these things too. So anyway, just want to throw that in there.
1: So the so let's let's wrap. This segment out, was, that was pretty much the whole show. Whoever that listener was, he, he got the whole show. But for the parents and the coaches out there, if you get a physical every year, you should get an EEG every year so you have a baseline to compare it to. And if it's not every year, every season, if something it, happens – yeah, go ahead, Jay. It, uh,
0: the EEG is generally stable uh, from year to year to year there's a developmental trajectory that's pretty aggressive from two to 10, but most of your sports injuries that you're talking about aren't necessarily nine, 10 year olds. Now it can be, but most of what you're talking about is high school and so forth. And yeah, yeah. at that point, the age is fairly stable uh, across time. So one your first year is going to be good until two, three years later anyway. So
1: Yeah. Well, and then unless you get, bonked in the head and you want to compare it,
0: Yeah, but yeah.
1: if you get bonked in the head, there's a period of time that you have to rest to let the swelling, the blood flow get back to normal. Would you say two, three days, three to five days a week, then you would go in to do it's, another?
0: It's a matter of scheduling it and getting it done. Uh, again, if there's an indication of a severe uh, injury, they're, they're going to treat you acutely. Uh, the, if you're unconscious you can't point your eyes in the right direction. I mean, if you're really uh, not functional after a head injury, they're going to test you fairly quickly, uh, and generally, they're going to end up wanting to have an MRI or a CT scan to rule out a bleed. That that that's their big concern is is an acute bleed, an epidural hematoma that can kill you in hours. You know, and and definitely before a couple of days. So, but a subdural hematoma is chronic and uh, it, it can last a long time. Uh, as, well, let, as was the let's case just say we, body. we,
1: we, we wave a magic wand and the school has a amplifier there to use in a technician. The magic happens. When would you go in? You get bonked. How long would you wait? Obviously it depends if they don't know where they are, that's a yeah. whole separate issue, but if assuming you're unsure, no,
0: assuming no severe injury, uh, if you wait three to five days, you're fine. Um, okay. the if it's a mild traumatic brain injury and you're still suffering three to five days later, uh, it's probably not as minor as you thought it was. We've still got all the discussion about Elon Musk, and you know, yeah. he's a real headline <laughs> grabber, you know. Uh, but you know, uh, uh, he's uh, he claims to be an Asperger's uh, case, and yeah, uh, that. That's on the autism spectrum, and that's a uh, that's a whole broad range of presentations. Bless the DSM five uh, for calling it a spectrum. Uh, autism ends up ranging from people who can't speak, which obviously uh, the stockholders would wish that Elon Musk might not speak sometimes, but uh, uh, he's he's fully verbal. There's lots of kinds of findings you can have in autism. 40% to 60% of the autism population have epileptiform discharges, not seizures, but epileptiform discharges. They would do well to be medicated for the discharges so that their brain would function better. A gigantic percentage of them have white matter uh, changes. There's a developmental period during which your brain wires up the white matter. It lays down white matter insulation on the neurons uh, so that they function better. And in autism, there's an overmyelination or undermyelination. And if that happens, then you have slow changes in the EEG delta content in the EEG. Others have mu, which is a, a unique mirror neuron related uh, uh, EEG uh, rhythm. It, it's in the alpha frequency range generally just a touch faster than the posterior alpha frequency. It's seen generally at C3C4, but it's also CP3CP4 for electrode locations. And it basically is, is there, you see mu when the mirror neuron isn't engaged. When you're laying down language face-to-face with your parents, you hear the ma-ma-ma, pa-pa-pa, ma, ma, da-da-da, and you mimic or mirror back those sounds. And eventually the baby learns, oh, mama is over here, papa is over there. And the central mimicking then gives the information to the temporal lobe where their comprehension happens. So you lay down language function on the left side and the mirror neuron ends up helping lay down language. Well, when the mirror neurons turned off or you're not mimicking or mirroring, you see mu. Mu happens in 15% of the normal population and 70% of the autism population. Uh, On the right hemisphere, you mimic facial expressions, emotional sounds, and uh, you you lay down the ability to have emotional contact with other people, empathy, uh, and and the ability to comprehend emotion. And in nonverbal autism, the left hemisphere is involved. And the mirror neuron on the left is usually faulty. Prosodic perception, emotional comprehension—the um, one on the right is faulty. Elon Musk—he doesn't see the impact of himself on others because he doesn't see others very well, and that—and that's a classic Asperger's autism trait. They tend to not be able to read emotion, read faces. In fact, the right temporal parietal junction that has the spot that ends up uh, comprehending facial expressions is impaired in in Asperger's autism. Facial expressions, body language, the emotional tone of speech. Uh, Your mother could give you the, the voice, you know, from across the room and you knew you were in trouble and you quit doing whatever you're doing. Well, when the, you can't understand the tone of the voice, then the, you have to escalate. So the, the inability to judge your impact on others generally leads to uh, more aggressive interventions. And the location uh, in the electrode locations is, in fact, old nomenclature T6, the right temporal parietal junction, It's now called P8. In the 1010 system, they kind of shifted some numbers and everything around um, uh, about a decade, well, over a decade ago. And uh, they're they're trying to uh, switch everybody over to the modified nomenclature. And uh, it it, it helps. Uh, 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 Journals expect the modified nomenclature now. So T6 or P8. Actually, T6, the old nomenclature, the T was supposed to be for temporal. But if you actually look carefully underneath that T6, you're on the temporal parietal junction on the parietal side of it. So it's got to be a P. Uh, it's parietal, you know. So uh, they they 1948-49, when they came up with the old nomenclature for the 10-20 system, uh, it, it was well intended, but the T5-T6 should have been uh, parietal. Uh, designation, just to be honest about what you're sitting on top of. It still picks up the posterior temporal aspect of the function, but uh, it's actually in the parietal area.
3: Well, hopefully Um, we adopt that quicker than uh, we did the metric system, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Uh, I I, I was really excited about switching over to the metric system because it made so damn much sense when I was in what junior high, I think it was. Um, uh, you know, I'm past retirement age now. So, uh, yeah, like how did that go? So.
3: Right. Exactly. So,
1: so how do you train it? I mean, can Elon ah, Musk well, is you it, know, sewing stuff into his head? Can he, you know, it, if,
0: if, if it's really severe, it, it would end up with wiring issues from the myelination and you'd see a slow focus in the temporal area on the right, Uh, If it's less than that serious, you may see mu on the right and right temporal parietal junction, excess alpha or slow alpha. And at that point, you can actually train it. We have worked with autism spectrum as an application area for a long time now. Uh, I've got a publication from 2011 in the Autism Science Digest, which it's not a journal; it's a digest. They invite authors to submit something. They already kind of pre-approve who's got something to put in. Uh, they might correct your English or something, but they don't really—they're they're not editing the science. They're, they don't have scientific uh, reviewers. They—they they basically invite people with content they want. Uh, we we describe the various subtypes of or various findings basically that that you could see in the spectrum even back there before it was called a spectrum. Uh, We actually know that we can train these areas and the behaviors associated with those areas can normalize. We have a number of people that came in with full-blown autism, Uh, the the spectrum uh, fully painted, Uh, can't speak, can't relate to you, can't look you in the face. Um, It takes time, lots of sessions, but they escape the diagnosis. It's not something you can catch. So it's not something you can cure, but it's a behavioral presentation and you can change the behavior to the point where you're no longer diagnosable. And there's, we have our our experiences that that's entirely possible. It's not quick and easy, but it's entirely possible to have people escape the diagnostic category entirely. You're more likely to escape it if you're what they call a high-functioning autism or uh, Asperger's case than if you have a a fully mute autistic. Um, You're more likely to come fully clean if you don't have the epileptiform discharges. Uh, The epileptiform discharges take quite a while to train away. Sometimes 100 training sessions or more for the ones that have epileptiform discharges. And if the discharge that you have doesn't include the motor strip, you don't have a seizure. So neurology is not going to give you an anticonvulsant generally. And in in our practice, we actually looked at non-epileptic patients that had epileptiform discharges in the EEG. And if you're not an epileptic, if you're not having seizures, the neurologist is likely to not give you an anticonvulsant. A psychiatrist, on the other hand, yeah, they'll give you an anticonvulsant to try and stabilize your nervous system. So, working with a, a, a psychiatrist, we, we looked at non-epileptic patients had epileptiform discharges, and we recommended the use an empirical trial in an anticonvulsant. They actually looked at 76 patients that had that recommendation. They looked at the outcome after they gave them an anticonvulsant. 85% of them got clinically better. Only six percent or so got any worse, and that's five patients, three of the five actually just had a rash or a fever and had to stop the anticonvulsant. They, they didn't get worse psychiatrically, but you know, having to change medications was one of the things that we identified as something that, that might be something indicating a worsening. Uh, so, but 85% success. The future of medicine is individualized or personalized medicine, evidence-based medicine. That's the evidence to personalize the approach. Uh, If if you see the epileptiform discharges, you should consider stabilizing that brain, whether or not they have seizures. In neurology, a lot of the, quote, normal patterns and normal variants that have epileptiform discharges are simply epileptiform discharges in areas that don't cause seizures. So they choose not to medicate. Benign Rolandic Epilepsy benign occipital epilepsy in adolescence. Uh, The benign occipital ones have visual hallucinations, sensory distortions, but they don't have convulsions, so they don't get anticonvulsants. If you actually treat them, you have a better outcome. Uh, John Hughes, uh, MD, PhD, epileptologist in Northwestern, uh, did a nice study on benign rolandic epilepsy, which is not really benign. They just don't have daytime seizures very commonly. Uh, And they they looked at life outcome. How far did you get an education? What's your income? Uh, uh, How are you, are you satisfied with your life basically? And for life satisfaction, treated versus non-treated, the people that were treated did very much better. The neurologists will look at that same paper and say, well, uh, the treated versus non-treated didn't really have a difference in seizures. Well, they don't have very many seizures in the first place. So that, you know, what kind of a measurement is that? Uh, the, 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 there's no difference in seizure rate, so we won't treat them. Well, better life outcomes. Why don't you treat them? You know, and the, it's still a controversy w- within uh, neurology. Uh, as to whether to treat these quote benign patterns or not. I had a, a course where a neurologist sat in on the course, an epileptologist actually, and and he just about bit through his tongue when I was talking about treating benign Rolandic epilepsy, because all of his training has been saying no, 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 no. And, you know, I, I argued for actually considering it and uh, quoted John Hughes's outcome. Well, <clears throat> I, I ruined this guy's career. I mean, he, He quit a very, very active uh, running of a level five epilepsy center and uh, took a year sabbatical to go running around learning how to do neurofeedback uh, because he wanted to start to treat his epileptic patients that, you know, you don't want to treat them with an anticonvulsant, but you want to give them something. And uh, so he was going to add in that while he was on his sabbatical, two of his benign Rolandic epilepsy patients died of seizures in their sleep. How benign is that? You know, his his uh, opinion of benign romantic epilepsy has been changed by his experience. Uh,
2: John uh, Hughes is up by us here. I don't know if you're familiar, but he, it's kind of a side note. He, he wrote a book on uh, conspiracy and uh, JFK. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, is that funny?
0: Yeah, he's he's also uh, extremely good with music. Uh, he, he's an old friend of mine. I I've known him since the '70s, and when I wrote the book, The Art of Artifacting, he actually wrote the review of it, um, saying uh, the only problem with a book is how do you get everybody to read it? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. So. so he's in our neighborhood.
2: You know, we're talking about Elon, and we're talking about autism spectrum things, and. Uh, one of uh, Skip and uh, my mentors, he he was uh, kind of a co-editor on the Cerebellum Journal, and he so he talked a lot about the Schmaman uh, research and how cerebellum can be involved in autism and uh, syncing your behavior to 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 uh, real life situations and things like that, and the up and coming research and uh, I don't know how how old it is already, but. Uh, how, you know, emotional dysregulation is pretty common in autism spectrum. So uh, when I think of Elon Musk and emotional dysregulation, he's probably the poster child of that. Um, But you're you're talking about seizures, Jay, and I was kind of curious kind of what your take is on, you know, this emotional dysregulation that could be cerebellum related versus uh, seizure activity and whether the anticonvulsants would be Uh, useful in kids with uh, emotional dysregulation?
0: If they have epileptiform discharges and they're emotionally dysregulated, an empirical trial and an anticonvulsant is warranted. Uh, Convulsion or no convulsion. If you go to a neurologist, unless you're convulsing in some fashion, you'll likely not get it prescribed. If you go to a psychiatrist, uh, they're, they're looking to stabilize your emotional you know, function, and they'll consider an anticonvulsant. They might try a couple of other things first, but they will consider an anticonvulsant, not based on an EEG necessarily, just as one of the next things to try if something else didn't work. Um, The more advanced ones are now looking at the EEG ahead of time as well. Uh, The cerebellum has been historically relegated to, uh, oh, it smooths motor function, it keeps you from reaching past what you're looking to reach towards. Keeps you from shaking and trembling and smooth things. It's just a motor thing, you know. It's it's involved with the basal ganglia, which are involved in motor function. But you know, those basal ganglia are involved in a lot of things that aren't motor function. Uh, all of your frontal executive function has basal ganglia interaction. The uh, it, it, just, just your motor regulation. The, the frontal lobe goes to the head of the caudate, to the putamen, globus pallidus, thalamus, and up to the motor strip. That's your inhibitory loop. It's how you regulate movement. But the same basal ganglia are involved in emotional regulation and uh, uh, action selection, uh, I- executive choice. Should I do this? Should I do that? Is it, should I inhibit this or should I excite this? You know, that, uh, all of those decisions end up being uh, uh, frontal executive function, but the frontal lobe doesn't regulate the brain cortical-cortical. It goes cortical, subcortical, thalamocortical, And those subcortical structures are uh, critical. The difficulty in EEG land is that the caudate and putamen and globus pallidus and thalamus are uh, monopoles, they don't generate externally visible EEG. The cerebellum is a monopole. It doesn't generate externally visible EEG. Now, there are people that are saying that they're recording things from the cerebellum. After. That uh, Well, there, there's not just one person, but uh, that there, there's an extraordinary level of proof that's needed to end up uh, showing that a monopole generating externally visible signals. If you stick an electrode on the head, you're going to pick up something, but where it's coming from is another matter. There are a lot of people trying to sharpen the focus on Loretta to see something coming from a non-gray matter source. The author of Loretta, uh, Rubero Pascal Marquis, um, with a Key Institute for mind brain Studies in Zurich, and now he works in Japan as well, Uh, basically suggests that sharpening the focus on Loretta isn't ethical to the mathematical assumptions underlying it. Uh, You're going to get a solution, but it may not be the right solution. Somewhere in the low resolution solution is the correct solution. It's kind of a fuzzy solution. Uh, You've got a a bunch of areas to pick from, uh, but the correct answer is in there. If you sharpen the focus, you're going to get an answer, but it may not be the right answer. The difficulty is for a given surface pattern, there's virtually an infinite number of subcortical processes that could generate that pattern on the surface. And uh, doing an inverse solution that gives you a solution that's correct, but but low resolution, uh, at least you've got a correct solution. Focusing it, you'll get a solution, but may not be correct. As fancy as some of the algorithmic-driven imaging is at this point, there's a lot of validation that still has to be done for me to end up fully accepting that you're seeing monopole activity from an external source.
1: Bob Thatcher, that phone ringing, it's me. Uh, we're going to be asking you to come on to the
0: next um, show. Actually, Bob's done some fabulous work with respect to traumatic brain injury. For instance, in the 1990s, he did a very nice piece of research. He was was congratulated on it by Mark Newer um, for adding to the science of traumatic brain injury. He did quantitative EEG and quantitative MRI correlations, showing that gray matter injuries give you alpha and beta changes. And white matter changes give you delta increases and, well, uh, s- slow increases. And um, that, that observation basically allows the EEG to identify more severe and less severe uh, in- injuries. Um, so he's, he, he's done some very good things for the science.
1: Tell me if it's right or it's wrong. So for the parents out there and the coaches, the kid that's got their bell rung, if you, have, if you don't have a baseline or EEG that you started out the season with, please get one. If you have one, your kid gets their bell rung, wait a few days for the brain to stop swelling, get back to uh, blood circulation, and then compare the two and have a, a neuropsychologist, neurologist look at it. Is that what they should do, guys? Okay, do that. And then depending on the age, you can get a EEG every season or every couple of years. If you haven't had any brain traumas, that's great. But just in case, because they make you get a physical every year to make sure your body's okay, make sure your mind's okay. Is that a fair?
0: Yeah. Okay. And, you know, if a team were to hire an EEG tech with a device to come in and record everybody in the team, you, 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 you end up, just getting the recordings. You don't have to have all of them analyzed until there's a head injury to end up with a baseline being compared. It's a fairly inexpensive procedure. Uh, EG texts moonlight all the time. Uh, if they're carrying their own equipment, you can usually get an EG recorder for 100, 150 bucks a pop uh, for a group. Line them up, cap them up, record 20 minutes of, uh, you know 10 minutes eyes open, 10 minutes eyes closed and you've got your baseline, the team lined up like that, you can get the entire team screened real quick.
1: Pardon upon peace of mind. All right, we thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast. Dr. Laura can be found at com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. Jay Gunkelman again, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. Idea for a topic, please email pete at com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. They can't hear us, we can't help them. View the non-copyrighted music.